Turned off by religion and hypocrisy? Hate being preached to? Something missing in your life? You haven't been getting the whole truth, the whole Bible, and the Hebraic roots of the scriptures. Get answers and treasures now on Solace Radio. Before we begin our study this morning, I would like for us to pray together. Baruch Adonai. Eloheinu melech haolam asher kidshenu b'misvatav etzivanu la'asok b'divrei Torah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who sanctifies us with his commands and commands us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Amen. We have been talking about new chapters in life, and I want to focus this morning on how new chapters often require a renewal of vision. And there are times in our life where God wants to move us forward, but in order to move us forward, He has to remind us and refresh us of vision that He has given perhaps even long ago. It may be vision that that is no longer pressing to us, but it's pressing to God. We may be absorbed in other things, busy with other things, but the vision by which He called us and the vision by which He sustains us may need refreshment. And there can be new chapters that God wants to open up to you, but they won't be possible unless you return to the vision that God had given you at the beginning, and you're faithful to that. And sometimes it takes a crisis of need to press us into God and to cause us to pursue God the way we used to pursue Him. When you... Learn how to take care of yourself. Sometimes you can try to meet all of your needs and do everything you possibly can to meet your needs. It's good to be faithful. It's good to be responsible. It's it's good to do things with excellence. But there are times when we will have a crisis of need that we cannot meet ourselves. A situation that's beyond us, a problem of such magnitude, you can't solve it on your own. Or it could be a problem that's been going on for so long that you can honestly say that no matter what you've done, you haven't been successful in solving it. Have you ever given your very best to solving a problem, to trying to meet a need in your life, and after doing your very best, the problem still remained? Who's had that experience? I'm glad I'm not alone. We see in the lives of the patriarchs this pattern that a new chapter is about to open up for them. But before it does, there's a crisis of need, and then there's an an encounter with God that renews the vision that they had. As Abraham was getting old, he was considering uh, what would happen when he died, and he looked around and realized that his servant, Eliezer, as we understand, would inherit all that Abraham had accumulated and achieved, and that even though he loved Eliezer, he knew that there was more that God had promised to him. And he had this crisis because God had promised to him a son and promised to make of him a great nation, and yet that hadn't been fulfilled. And in that crisis of need, he went to the Lord, and he had an encounter with with God. He pursued God. The Scripture says If you seek the Lord with all of your heart, you will find him. And Abraham sought the Lord. 
And the Lord came and appeared to him and visited him and, and told him that within the year he and Sarah would have a child. And they did. Sometimes the crisis of need is directly associated with God's work in your life because he's pressing you to press into him. The, the apostles, the first disciples of Yeshua had a crisis of need. Can you imagine your hero, Messiah Yeshua, is captured by Roman soldiers, taken and nailed to a cross, crucified, killed. He really dies in front of your eyes. Can you imagine the tragedy and the despair that could come over you? The sense of hopelessness. All that you were hoping to happen was connected to him. It was resting on his shoulders. And now he's dead. You can imagine what that could do to people in their hope. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead, but when he rose from the dead, it was quite unbelievable, at least for the guys. And so women carried that message, you remember? The guys thought, oh, crazy talk. It was crazy. The, the only problem was it was true. Something unbelievable had happened, and that was Yeshua had been raised up from the grave. So that's good news. If you're one of his disciples and you see him again, it's like, wow, we thought it was all over. Can you imagine the encouragement that that they felt on those days when they saw him and they thought, even death can't stop him. And then he he was teaching in a brand new way about the kingdom of God, the authority of God, and how God is is king over all the earth and what that means to those who follow him. It was such an exciting time. And then, and then he said, now that we're all doing so well, I'm leaving. And that could not have been good news to everyone because he had to say to them, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Can you imagine the sulking? You know, we tend to think of the apostles as being strong men of God, but I think they had some emotion. I mean, when they were fighting each other, you know, who's going to be sitting next to him on the right or the left? Like little kids. I want to sit next to him. You can't sit next to him. I called shotgun. <laughs> and they're fighting, you know, who's going to be the most important one? And he says, you're, you're thinking like the nations do, like the Gentiles do. You've got a misunderstanding of authority. And they had lots of emotion. And I'm not saying emotion is bad. It's not. Emotion comes from the heart. And if you took away our emotion, we'd all be rocks. God has called us to love him with all of our heart. So smile at the person next to you and say, it's emotional to love God. It's emotional to love God. Now, it's not only emotional because it also involves the mind. Right? And it involves our bodies, our strength, our spirits as well. You know, there are some people who think that it, it's only about the spirit, nothing about the mind. And yet it's very clear. Yeshua said the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all these different aspects, including your mind. But you probably heard the story about the guy who became a believer and realized that he needed to think differently, so he needed a, a new brain. And so he went, as you would, to a brain store. And there were all these different brains. There was 
There's this one brain, it was an engineer's brain, it was uh, $5,000. He said, I've always thought of engineers as being pretty advanced. He said, yeah, yeah, 5000 Good, what else do you have? And and then there was a doctor's brain, and, and that was $12,000. And that looked good. You know, well, maybe I'll be a doctor, I don't know. Get a doctor's brain. And, and then he said, well, do you have anything really special? And he said, yeah, in the back room. So they go in the back room. And he says, well, well, how much is this one? And he says, $150,000. And he says, well, what is it? He says, well, this is a believer's brain. And he said, well, why is it so expensive? And the guy says, oh, this one's never been used. <laughs> Sometimes believers are like that. They, they stop thinking. They stop using their intellect in service to God. As if the intellect and the spirit and the heart are at war with each other. They're not. They're meant to cooperate with, uh, with each other and to be united and integrated together. So it's not a battle against these different parts of us that God is waging. He is the only one who can unite them. And that's why he tells us the secret to uniting the different parts of a human being is to love God. That's the key. When you learn to love God with your heart, and you learn to love God with your soul, with your will, your personality, with with all of your persona, when you learn to love Him with your strength, with your physicality, with your body, when you learn to love Him with your mind as well, then you will discover what fullness of life can be like. And if you take away any one of those parts, you will be a disintegrated person. A broken person who doesn't work in a normal and a complete way. So to be made new, a new creation, in part means that we're submitted to God, and in part means in that submission it's all of us that's submitted, not just a piece of us. There are people who submit their theology to God, but they don't submit their policy to God. There are people who submit their two hours a week to God for a service, but they don't submit their life to God. And God is looking for how much of your life? All of it. Tell the person next to you. All of it. All of it. He wants all of you. He doesn't want just a piece of you. And that is because He is trying to make a family. He's trying to be father to us. And in order to be father, he has to pay attention to everything about us. He's not trying to make an army. He's not trying to make an economy. He's not trying to make just a religious organization. He's not trying to make a religious event out of us. He's trying to make a family out of us. And that is why the Holy Spirit cries out through all of us to God and says, Abba. And so even the anti-Semites in the body of Messiah have to speak Hebrew. Or they suppress the Holy Spirit. The disciples were doing great after Yeshua was resurrected. But when he said, I'm going to return to heaven, they weren't doing so good because it didn't fit into their plans. It was a trouble. It was a crisis of need. What will we do? And I want you to consider what Yeshua told them to do. 
He said, let's, let's break it into pieces. Number one, stay here. Say that with me. Stay here. Stay in Jerusalem, right? Stay here. Stay together. Say that with me. Stay together. So it's not just enough to remain in the, in the geography. They had to stay together. And they had to pray together. And then he gave them another word. Wait. Wait. Say that with me. Wait. How many of you have kids who don't like to wait? How many of you are kids who don't like to wait? You've prayed. Lord, give me patience now. Right? The Lord said to these disciples, you stay, you stay together, you wait for me, and when you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit from the Father, which I can only give when I return to heaven, when you receive the Holy Spirit, then you can go out and be my eyewitnesses. And you can tell other people what I have done for you. He said, you will be able to go to Jerusalem, to Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the world. But you won't be able to do it until you do what I told you, which is to stay together. You see, there is a human tendency to scatter. Do you remember when Yeshua died? The people scattered. You can understand why. And he went after them to gather them back up because it is part of our waywardness, if you will, that that can only be corrected when we submit to the Lord and say, Lord, gather me to decide to stay together. It was very important for these disciples. It was actually necessary for the next chapter in their life. So do you see the crisis of need? First at the crucifixion, but then at the ascension, there's a new crisis of need. And in that, there's a new encounter with God. You would think that, you know, with two Jews, there are three opinions. You can imagine all these disciples having a discussion, maybe a poll. Let's take a survey. How many of, how many of us want to stay in Jerusalem? I'm sick of Jerusalem. They, they killed Yeshua here. It's sad to be in Jerusalem. Where could we stay that's cheaper? <laughs> the upper room, it's kind of expensive to stay there. But there was no survey. There was no poll. It wasn't a democratic decision. It was a decision Yeshua reserved for himself, and he gave it to his disciples. And this produces fresh new encounters. When you let God command you, you'll have a fresh new encounter with God. When you're trying to command God and fit Him into your plans, you will become resistant to what God is wanting to do. He wants you to pray, but He wants you to pray His will. Yeshua said when the disciples asked, how should we pray? He said, well, here's one part of the prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why does why do the believers need to learn to pray like this? Because our human tendency is to pray the other way. My will be done in heaven as it is right here in my heart. Submitting to the Lord will cure a lot of things. It will also create opportunity for you for the new chapter. 
And when you reject the submission to God and you reject the, the remaining together and, and the continuing as a kehilah, you reject the new chapters whether you knew it or not. And things that God wants to open up to you don't get opened up. And sometimes people say, why, why am I stuck? And the reason is, so many times they've lost the attitude of submission and the behavior of submission towards God. And they have begun to forsake the assembling together. Or as, as the Greek says, the synagoguing together. And I love the Greek because hidden within the Greek are all these Jewish thoughts. And sometimes I think if uh, replacement theology people knew what was in the Greek, they would have tried to change it. If they really got it, they would have tried to eliminate it, and yet God watched over His Word and kept certain things in the text that no replacement theology person agrees with, but it's still there in the text. And so all it takes is to have a heart of submission to God and a love for Israel and for the Jewish Messiah, and then you start looking at the text and you see things that are hidden or were hidden. Don't forsake the synagoguing together. When when I was being drawn to the Lord, one of the things that drew me was the Jewishness of Yeshua. And the Jews who I saw described in the New Testament writings. I was reading the Tanakh, I was reading Torah, and I was seeing what the faith of Abraham was like. And I actually remember having this burning desire, God, I want that kind of life with you. I saw how Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had been faithful to God and had real encounters with a living God. And I said to God, I want that kind of faith too. I want that kind of life. I was shocked when the Lord sent a charismatic Christian to me. I knew he was charismatic. I didn't know what that meant. The only one who I knew was charismatic was JFK, a politician. He was a charismatic politician. I I remember asking Sandy, what's a charismatic Christian? She said, well, they believe that they can do miracles like Jesus did. And I thought, that is so strange. On two counts. One, that they could do miracles, and two, that Jesus did miracles. Because honestly, that wasn't on my radar. Because uh, I barely believed he existed, historically, to be honest with you. But I will never forget that that moment when I was talking with Pat Pritchard, and I just asked him a question I hadn't fully anticipated asking. I said, tell me what you believe. And he did. And what he told me, was a surprise to me because he was telling me about the faithfulness of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He was telling me about the faithfulness of the God of Israel to the Jewish people. And I understood that he knew God differently than I did. He had a relationship with God, and I wanted a relationship with God. I knew about God, but I didn't have that living relationship. And that was part of a process that caused me to actually pray to the Lord and to say, Lord, I know you exist, but this Jesus, this Yeshua, I'm not sure if I need to know if he's real. And if he's real, I'll change my life. I'll Actually, I said, I'll act appropriately. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what I was trying to communicate to the Lord. 
But when he did reveal himself to me, when Yeshua revealed himself to me, the Holy Spirit reminded me, act appropriately. <laughs> and so I, I tried to clean up some things in my life to make myself a better person, to be a more ethical person. How many of you had that response when the Lord called you? You started cleaning things up. There was one difficulty I had. I was reading in the scriptures things that, that Peter said and that others said, which is, what are you to do when, when you are touched by the Lord? You're to repent. Okay, I was ready for that, I thought. And believe. Okay, I'm ready for that. And then be forgiven. Sounds good. Be immersed in water. You've got to be kidding. For me as a Jew, I wasn't going to do it. Because that's the point of no return. And I understood how we were trained as as young people to think. We thought anyone who does that, any Jew who does that, has turned his back on the Jewish people. But I was so surprised when I was reading in Habrita Harashah in the New Testament Scriptures that Jews had written these books. And that that Yeshua himself was Jewish. I was shocked, I have to tell you this, to read that Paul went to synagogue on Saturday mornings. I thought he went to church. And church is on Sunday. I, I didn't know he was a Pharisee. I, I thought Jesus was Catholic. Maybe Southern Baptist. It didn't matter. You know, he wasn't one of us. I didn't know he was Jewish. I didn't know that the first people who believed in him were Jews. I had no idea. If ignorance is bliss, I would have been a really happy person. But in fact, ignorance didn't bring me happiness. It did something else. It just kept me ignorant. But the scriptures began to deliver me of that ignorance, but they raised my awareness of the cost as well. And so the Lord was saying through the scriptures, be immersed in water, and I was saying, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll, I'll, I'll be better in this area of my life. I was negotiating, a little bargaining. The Lord says, here's the price. I say, well, how about this? He's, he holds to the price. I say, well, okay, I'll go up a dollar. You know, like we're, like we're bargaining together. It took, it took months for me to realize that there was no bargain to be made that we're not negotiating, that to say that I believe means I will follow him. To say that I trust him means I will submit to him. To call him Lord means he's boss. Lord sounds so good, doesn't it? He's Lord. But when it means he can order me around, it, it takes on a different meaning. And so the completion of that First step of repentance required obedience, and that was a crisis for me because I understood I will get into trouble for this. Believing's one thing, but taking action is another. I got immersed in water after I'd counted the cost and was ready to pay the cost of family rejection. Within 24 hours, I was being disinherited and rejected by my family, treated like a traitor. My sanity was even in question. But I was prepared. And somehow we made it through that kind of rejection and we endured and it took years of perseverance. I can tell you that on all of our parts. But we held firm because we understood something. We were still a family, like it or not. 
we were still a family. And we were called to love each other and to endure each other, to forgive each other, and we had to to walk our way through that. But that obedience to God was a fresh new encounter for me and led me into a life that I could not have obtained on my own. The Lord will use crises in your life in order to draw something out of you that can't be built any other way. The crisis of need that Jacob faced, we can read about it in uh, in Genesis chapter 32. He's returned from the far-off country where he married, and now in 32 verse 3, Jacob sends messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir. He's come back to the promised land, and that creates a new crisis of need because now he has to deal with his brother Esau, the one who had hatred towards Jacob, the one who promised vengeance, and the one who really threatened the life and the continued existence of Jacob. Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. The word for messenger there is malachim, same word for angels used in verse 1. The angels of God met Jacob when he was on his way. And so it can mean both messenger, it can mean angel. And in in this particular passage, um, it's not clear. I don't actually think he sent angels. I think he sent messengers myself. But there are a number of words in this Parsha that have two different meanings, and those two different meanings are not always easy to reconcile. So this Parsha has all this vocabulary with double meanings in order to push us towards God, to push us towards deep readings and clear thinking. Jacob sent messengers, verse 3, before him to Esau's brother in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I've dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants, and I've sent to tell my lord that I might find favor in your sight. So he's sending gifts to Esau, his brother. You know, he was the one who took from Esau. Now he's trying to give. The messengers returned to Jacob and they said, well, we came to your brother Esau and he's also coming to meet you. And 400 men are coming with him. Yeah, that doesn't sound good, does it? It's not a welcome party. It's his militia, his guys, his army. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. Do you think that's an emotional response? It is. But do you think it's more than emotion? I think it is. There are facts on the ground here. This is a dangerous situation. He divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies into, um, let me find the word I wanted to, to give you into two camps here. And he said, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the other camp which is left will escape. And, and then, in this crisis of need, he goes to the Lord. And he prays, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. It's an appeal. Lord, you were faithful to my grandpa. You were faithful to my dad. And you said to me, you said to me, 
Return to your country and to your family and I'll deal well with you. You're the reason I'm in this mess. You're the reason I have this problem. If I'd stayed with Laban, I wouldn't have this problem. That's the easy way of thinking, right? But you know what? When he was with Laban, he had problems, big problems. This is what I like about Jacob. He, he goes into a situation that's quite, that is quite difficult and it gets more difficult. He presses into God and he finds solutions. But with Laban, you know what the solution was? Get out of Dodge. It was move, leave. It became so intolerable. Have you ever been in that kind of situation? You asked God to open up something for you. You went into what he opened up for you, and then it turned out to be intolerable? I know I'm not alone. Some of you may be in that situation right now. And you're saying, how did I get myself into this mess? Oh, the Lord led me. The Lord led me into this mess Mm -hmm. so that he can lead you into what's next. Because sometimes there's a blessing in the mess. That's why we are the messianic movement. We're committed to the mess and the redemption of God. Sometimes there's a blessing in the mess and you have to be faithful to God to get the blessing. And then the situation's intolerable and you move into the next chapter. But if you move in your own strength and you move in your own time, you move in your own wisdom and in your own emotion, you won't get into the right next chapter. You'll get into the wrong chapter. And you'll be wayward going your own way rather than being with the Lord going his way. So Jacob is saying, Lord, you're the one who said, come back here and I'll deal well with you. Now, now let's be honest about this. This is actually a prayer of faith. When you find yourself in an intolerable or difficult situation, when you have a crisis of need, faith expresses itself by speaking to God and reminding Him of why you can trust Him. Lord, I'm here because you told me to come here. I'm here and you said you'll deal well with me. So that's not a complaint. Do you understand that? That's sincerity. God, here I am, and I'm looking to you. What's really dangerous is not to pray to God, but to just try to finagle your way through life without him. To say, oh, this is intolerable, I'm out of here. Or to say, this God stuff, it's a mess. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Or these people God sends me to, they're terrible. They're awful. I'm finished with those people. Return to your country, you said, Lord, to your family, and I'll deal well with you. Jacob says, I'm not worthy of the least of all the mercies and all the truth which you've shown your servant. I have crossed over this Jordan with my staff, and now I've become two camps. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, because I am afraid of him, that he would come and he would attack me and the mother of the children. And you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now here's, here's what's going on. That, that vision is being renewed in Jacob. When he faces this crisis of need, he's thinking, I, I could lose everything. Well, what is everything? Everything is what God's promised. You see, that's the key to understanding this. He's not saying, I could lose all my money. He's not saying, I could lose the sheep or the camels. Because his promise from God is not depending on those things. 
His promise is depending on being a family with generations to come. And he's holding on to that vision. And he stayed there that same night. He took what came to his hand as a present for Esau. He sent all these things, goats and lots of goats, sheep, rams, camels, milk camels. (laughs) Anybody here ever drink camel milk? Sandy and I were in Jerusalem once. We were served a bowl of soup and a big spoon to eat it with. Sort of a bra. And I remember as it came closer to my face, I thought, it's got to be camel leg soup. It stinks so bad. I don't know what camel leg soup would smell like, but I could just think of dirty camel leg with all of its nasty fur still on it, dipped in hot water, and then they served it to us. I I tried. At least three times I took that spoon. And I brought it towards my face. It got like, uh, my head started shaking as it's getting closer. And I, uh, I can't do it. <laughs> and again, I tried. Uh. So uh, this idea of, you know, milk camels is like, uh. you got to be from the Middle East to love those things. But let's go down to verse 24. Jacob was left alone. After all this, he was left alone. You know, when you have a crisis of need, there's going to be some lonely moments. How many of you can identify with that? When when God is wanting to open up new chapters and there's a crisis of need, you'll find yourself alone even if you're in the company of other people. You'll feel alone. But Jacob actually was alone. And then the text is fascinating because it says, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. And in Hebrew, it says ish. And you know what ish means in Hebrew? Man. That's all it means. A man. So a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. This this text, this passage, is fascinating and perplexing to Jewish commentators over the ages. Some have tried to figure out, who is this man? Well, actually, everybody's tried to figure it out, because the key to understanding what's going on is to know, who's the man? Who is that man? And why does Jacob say that after wrestling with him, He'd wrestle with God. And why does it say that he wrestled with angels or an angel? And so you've got a, you've got a man who's an angel, who's God, and that is theologically perplexing for everyone except Messianic Jews. Because we can see it for what it is, that God can actually come down and take on human form and his, his, being can be confusing, if you will, and people can think, oh, that's an angel, but it turns out to be a man, but it's not a man-man, it's a man who's actually a human body for God. That fits in, doesn't it? We understand that. That makes sense to us, right? Maimonides has the most difficulty with this, because Maimonides came up with certain doctrines for the Jewish people. One of them is that God has no corporality. He has no physicality. That It's not that he's invisible, he's intangible. That's the idea. That there is nothing tangible about God. And so Maimonides says, this was a dream. But here's how you know it wasn't a dream. The hip. The man, the angel, God touches Jacob on his hip, and forever Jacob limps after that. And his sons, 
honor this moment by avoiding eating certain parts of animals around the hip, that zone of the hip. Now, let me ask you, how many of you have dreams about flying? I pity the rest of you. I love to fly in my dreams. I especially like it when I can fly by pushing my arms down like this, and then I get up to a place where I can just sort of hover. How many of you can do that too in your dreams? A few of you. The rest of you, you should learn to dream like this. (laughs) But I wake up after a dream, and you know what? I still can't fly. Have you ever had a dream where there's a terrible threat to you, danger, and you wake up and there's no physical danger around you, right? It was in the dream. You can't be injured in a dream. And that's what the text is trying to tell us. This wasn't a dream. So dear Maimonides didn't get it right. He had a theology that he was trying to box everything into for his reasons. But you have to ask yourself, how do you form your theology? Do you form it and then you force everything into that theology, whether it holds it or not? Or do you adjust your theology so that it can contain what God actually does and what the Scriptures say? I encourage you to let the Scriptures adjust your theology rather than you adjust the Scriptures. Now, there are others who say this this man, angel was actually the guardian angel of Esau. And that Jacob was wrestling with the guardian angel of Esau. But that doesn't, that can't be explained according to the text where it says that I saw God face to face, right? And then there are others who say this is just the archetype of psychological trauma and the dilemma that everyone faces uh, when they have an existential crisis. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> and they're wondering, is their hope and future completely lost? And it's just a picture that you can work your way through that. I don't think that explains it. I think that this man is a man. But he is God who's taken on a temporary human body. Jacob wants to know what's the name of this this one, and he says, not telling. And there are some other scriptures where we have similar occasions, and I, I think it's just God's wisdom not to reveal. But Jacob is is wrestling with this man, and it and it says that when this man, this divine figure, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip. The socket of Jacob's hip was thrown out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said to Jacob, let me go because the day breaks. And Jacob said, I'll not let you go unless you bless me. So ask yourself this question. How is it that God can't defeat a man when they're wrestling? That's a question that's answered in this text. The answer is this. When God takes on human form, when he, when he incorporates himself into a human body in this way, he actually limits the manifestation of his strength in being to the strength in being of that human body. This is helpful for us when we're thinking about how how did Yeshua die? Shouldn't he have been invulnerable? 
And was the death of Yeshua the, the murder of God? No, it was the sacrifice of that human flesh, which was temporal. It wasn't eternal. God is eternal, but that human body was not eternal. Do you get that? That human body was humanly conceived and born with divine agency, no doubt. But inside that body was the fullness of God, fully God. But it shows you something. When God comes in human form, he comes and he limits his strength to the body that he's got. Now, why would he do that? And I think this is the reason. Because it's always been his intention to come and to work through human beings. And he reveals to us that his freedom to work is limited by us. The power that he manifests in us is limited by our human being. Our willingness. Now then there's another side to this. Let's look at Jacob because it fits into a picture. Jacob is wrestling with him. Now, it's important to get the idea of what this wrestling is. This is not worldwide wrestling. They're not doing pile drivers. They're not throwing each other you know, out of the ring and things like that. They're not busting each other in the face. This is something else. It's very physical, but it has a purpose. Not to destroy, but to compel. And what we see in this is Jacob is now using all of his strength to get a hold of God. And what does he want from God? He wants from God what God wants for him. I'm not going to let go of you until you bless me. Until you give me what you've got for me. This is the way out of a crisis of need when you encounter God in any way. You won't wrestle physically with God. There's no other occasion in the Scriptures. This is not a prototype for what every believer will experience. You know, you're going to have a moment of aloneness and God will appear as a man who's like an angel, but he's really God, and you're going to grapple you know, through the night. That's not it. But there is a lesson anyway. The lesson is Jacob had to use all of his strength in pursuit of what God had for him. His solution, his next chapter depended on his being wholehearted towards God and using all of his strength. And he was so wholehearted that he got the blessing. This is what God's looking for. How much of you does he want? All of you. When you seek me with all of your heart, you'll find me. Tell me your name, I pray, Jacob said. And he says, why do you ask my name? He blessed him there. That's a nice way of saying no. But prior to that, this man says, what's your name? And he says, Jacob. And then the other one says, your name will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you've struggled with God and with men, and you have prevailed. And so after this encounter... Jacob, this is verse 30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel because I've seen God face to face and my life has been preserved. You see, Jacob understood to encounter God so directly is dangerous. When God takes on human form in order to encounter one of the, um, one of the patriarchs, it's for their safety and protection so that they can survive the encounter. 
But Jacob says, I've seen God face to face. Say that with me. I've seen God face to face. That's what the Hebrew says. And that's why this text is a dilemma for non-Messianic Jews. Because what it says in the most simple of ways and the most direct of, ra- direct of ways repeated again and again doesn't fit into the box that much of rabbinic Judaism has created for its theology. However, there are many Jewish scholars. Martin Buber is one. There are many others who have said what the text means is actually clear. He wrestled with God. And that God came in such a form that he was a man. That's what happened. That's what the text says. The the lesson from this, when when you're facing a crisis of need, God is going to test you to see where do you look for solutions. What do you use your strength for? And if you want to be like Jacob, you will use your strength in pursuit of God and trying to get God's blessing, God's desires, God's vision for you. When when I was seeking after the Lord and deciding to follow Yeshua, you know what happened? It brought me back to God's call on the Jewish people. I wasn't looking for something else. I wasn't unhappy with my Jewishness in any way, shape, or form. But I wanted my Jewishness to carry the character of the Jewishness that I saw in the Scriptures with a living faith with a living God. And I wanted those kinds of encounters with God, not the ones that you create for yourselves, not just psychological process. I'm talking about something else. A true spiritual encounter with the living God. And I can tell you, my decision to follow Yeshua was connected to my desire to return to the calling of the Jewish people. To fulfill that, Because God has called us to be a people, to be a nation, a holy nation, not a nation with priests, a nation of priests who minister to the whole world the good news of God, the faithfulness of God, and who have a vision for not just our clan of people, our tribe of people, our nation, but a vision for the whole world and a desire for all the nations of the world to be drawn together in service to God. I grew up and I had this blessing of having a family with strong Jewish identity. I went to a school where every year at Christmas time there was a Christmas pageant, a big assembly, and for four to six weeks in the in the afternoon, classes were suspended and people went and they learned songs, they learned Christmas carols. I missed all that. I didn't go to any of that. Because My parents told the school administration, we're Jews, we don't celebrate Christmas. And so I sat alone in my classroom, sometimes for several hours, and pondered the universe, and doodled, and did homework, and whatever. There were moments when the Gentile Christian kids were covetous, or envied me because they were sick of the practice. And maybe for a moment they thought, I wish I was Jewish. <laughs> when, when, when it snowed in Virginia because of the mountains and the hills, we would have snow days and we wouldn't have school. And there were so many that were scheduled in the calendar 
But if we had too much snow, we had to do makeup days. How many of you had makeup days? But you know when all the makeup days were? Saturday. Yeah, Saturday. And so my parents would contact the school and say, we're Jews, we don't go to school on Saturday. And that's the way it was. We didn't go to school on Saturday. And and my parents said to all of us, you understand they're not going to schedule school on Sunday. And if they did, we'd go to school. You'd go to school. But we're Jewish, we don't go to school on Saturday. And of course, I was glad to be Jewish at that moment. (laughs) But they had to make arrangements so that if I missed a test, I could make it up. I had to do my homework and everything. And almost always, if we had to go to school on Saturday, that Saturday we were definitely in synagogue. You could be sure. (laughs) When Rosh Hashanah came as conservative Jews, we celebrated for two days, which meant at least four services. Erev Rosh Hashanah, Yom Rosh Hashanah the next day, Erev Rosh Hashanah again that night, and then Yom Rosh Hashanah the next day. Four services minimum, long services too. And so we never went to school. It wasn't an option. My parents never said, what should we do this year? It was always, we're Jews, we don't go to school on Rosh Hashanah. And that was a gift. Because if you ask a kid, you know, what they want to do, one day they want to do this, the next day they want to do that, I'm so grateful for my parents that they didn't give us that choice. Did we ever complain? No. Yeah, of course. Of course we did. We complained when we were in a long service, thinking, oh, I wish I were in school. But we learned not to complain because we were where we were supposed to be. On Yom Kippur, you know what we had for lunch? Nothing. Nothing. Because we were Jews. It wasn't a question of, are we going to fast this year? You fast. When you reach a certain age, you fast. The decision's made for you. But but I want to be led by the Spirit. Okay, you'll be led by my Spirit. (laughs) It was a gift to us to have that strong identity, to have boundaries about who we were. And so when I came to Yeshua, it wasn't to get away from Jewishness. It was in pursuit of a special kind of Jewishness, a living faith. And what I discovered is this. There are crises that come to you that are turning points that God is using, difficulties that are challenges and also opportunities, and they are meant to press you into God so that you will seek Him with all that you are, and you'll understand there's a cost to following Him, but when you find Him, it will be treasure that will keep you forever. There's a price, and the price is that commitment to remain and to not allow other things to pull us away. And so I want to live in that way. I want to live in a way that reflects that. I want you to have that benefit. You know where Yeshua was on Shabbat? He was celebrating Shabbat, watching his favorite football team. I don't know. No, he wasn't. He was at synagogue. You know where Paul was on Shabbat? In synagogue. Who knew? This is a gift that you give to your family into the generations that come after you. It's a strong identity marked by strong commitments to be part of the house of God, part of the kehilah, the congregation. And when you think about the choices that you make and the decisions that you make, I encourage you, don't be shallow in your thinking and in your choices. My parents weren't thinking, oh, now our kids are going to get discriminated against or face prejudice. They just thought that was a fact of life. 
That comes with the territory. You don't try to avoid that. You try to be strong in the face of it. But by giving that strong identity, you know what? It helps us pass something on to the next generation and the generation after that. Why is God identified as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Because there are three generations involved here. Don't think of yourself. Don't be selfish. Don't be uh, self-centered when you're making decisions about what's good to do with your life. Think about the impact your decisions will have on the identity and on the spiritual life of your children's children and their children. Think that far along, and then you'll truly be thinking like Jewish people in the Bible. This is why Paul said to Timothy, you take the faithful words you've learned from me, and you teach them to faithful men who will teach others also. Four generations. Think beyond today. One of the great weaknesses of evangelical thought and charismatic Christian thought in these days, and much Messianic Jewish thought, is that it's become short-term oriented, thinking that everything must wrap up so quickly that there are not future generations that we have to prepare for and think about. And I think that's a weakness. And I think many people who ascribe to those short-term theologies will fall by the wayside and their faith will not survive another generation. And their children will be discouraged and their grandchildren will be discouraged if the Lord tarries. And if you say, well, he won't tarry. Well, that's what they said 2,000 years ago. Prepare for the long term. Prepare for generation after generation. I hope as you're studying this week the life of Jacob, the crisis that he faced, and the way that he pursued God, the way he used all of his strength, that you'll have a crisis too that will cause you to have a renewal and a refreshment of your own vision, and that will cause you to return to the first love that you had where you were willing to do anything for God. And you were willing to gather together, and you weren't cynical, and you weren't hardened, and you weren't dull, and you were sharp, wanting to be in the house of God, gathered with God's people in pursuit of God. And when you return to that first love, you know what will happen? New chapters will open up for you. New blessings will open up for you. Maybe not the ones that you were trying to get for yourself, but the ones that God wants to give to you that are even better than the ones you want to get for yourself. That's my hope and my prayer, that you'll use this time as we prepare for Hanukkah to rededicate yourself, to examine yourself, and to allow God to renew the vision from long ago the vision of the calling of the people Israel that you have been joined to and that you have a responsibility not only to fulfill, but you have a responsibility to pass on to multiple generations for the future. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness to us. I thank you for your goodness. I thank you that you have kept a remnant even when we couldn't keep ourselves. You are the faithful God, the faithful God of Israel. And Lord, we want to come before you and we want to say, renew our hearts, refresh our vision, renew us by your spirit, that we would have a renewed vision of the Kehilah of God, the community of God, the congregation of God, and that we would learn once again the value of gathering together, of synagoguing together, of coming to the house of God, of taking Shabbat together 
and finding our rest in you. We pray this in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen. We're going to close with Aaron's blessing. Would you please rise? The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. Keep watch over you and protect you. The Lord cause the light of His face to shine upon you. The Lord be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His face to you and give you His peace. In the name of Yeshua, the Prince of Peace.